0: This morning, in a series where we're looking at calling, we're talking about calling. We're calling the series Called by God. And as we've mentioned a number of times, typically, whenever we use the language of calling, we tend to think more of very specifically what am I supposed to do? Who am I to marry? What job am I to take? Where am I supposed to live? That tends in our culture to be what most of the press is over calling. But we will talk about those some, but we want to focus more on calling more in a sense of what kind of life has God called us to? What is the Christian life to look like? What kind of people does He want us to be? After all, in Scripture, that's far and away more the sense that uh, it speaks of our calling. What? How are we to respond to His call in our life? Who should we be? I noticed earlier, it's... We're looking at a different passage that you see in your bulletin there. We're looking at 2 Corinthians 4. And uh, this morning we're going to be talking about suffering. Now, that probably thrilled you just to hear that. Oh, great. I was hoping we would talk about that. Maybe we can get really somber and sad. We all want to hear more about suffering, right? But um, I I personally think it will be very hopeful. Especially the things that the Apostle Paul says in our passage, but the reality is, suffering is a a very real part of life. There's no getting away from it. Uh, our life is filled with suffering. We are broken people that have a sinful nature that live in a broken world, and that is true for everyone sitting here this morning. And what that means is, you will know suffering in your life. It's inevitable whether it be on a large scale, which just in the past couple of weeks, we have this constant onslaught of unbelievable suffering in the world, but yet also in the everyday small realities of our life. This past week, I tasted this a little bit, first and foremost. Uh, Ashley and I have this, this really awesome fancy minivan. Perhaps you've seen us cruising around in it. Jelly complimented me on it the other day. I think we passed each other, but he was in his minivan too. Uh, it's humiliating. But, so we have this minivan, and almost since the day that we bought it, something was wrong with the transmission. And so we've prayed it through about four years, and then finally coming back from Christmas, I didn't think we were going to make it home. We, we rolled in just barely. And so we thought, all right, it's time to go have this thing fixed. So we take it in to the place, and, of course, they've got to rebuild the whole thing. So this past week, I went down to get my van after it had been rebuilt, and I stroked this enormously large check that I rarely stroke in that size. And I was hurting over this, and I go out and I get in my van, and I crank it up, and I notice right off the bat something doesn't feel right in the thing. It was puttering a little bit, and I mean, I'm no mechanic, but I know whenever it's not right. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, you get people in there tinkering around, you don't know what they're gonna knock loose. Well, thought maybe once I get going, it'll feel right. And and it was pouring down rain, which was very symbolic of this whole experience of paying all this money. So we, I turn out on the 23rd Street, and it's sputtering. I'm like, ah, oh, we'll get going, get her warmed up. I come to. Dodds Avenue, hung a left on Dodds Avenue and that sucker cut off dead right there, in the middle of the road and if you know anything about Dodds Avenue, it's not the kind of road you want to dial, right? There's no room there Luckily I had enough momentum to wheel it over off the road right next to uh, Yum Yum Good Food Have y'all seen this place? I don't know what they do in there I'm quite certain it has nothing to do with food But I was not happy to be parked at Yum Yum Good Food. But I'm sitting there in my car, just stroked stroked this enormous check. It's pouring down rain. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, why me? Why me? Why is this happening to me? Don't you ever think that? Just facing the everyday realities of life. Why is this happening to me? I was experiencing a reality captured by one of our elders. Don Dutton, who's somewhat of a, of a sage, you know, he's filled with these great proverbs and sayings. And, and Don Dutton has got this, this saying where he says, Every time I get ahead, I get a toothache. And which, uh, maybe that means nothing to you, but it's getting across the reality that in life, whenever everything finally seems to be coming together, you're getting ahead, things are working out, you've moved past some difficult thing in life and you're like, all right, free and clear, smooth sailing now. At that point, something else goes wrong. Isn't that the reality of life? In your life? The moment you think, oh, I'm rolling now, something else goes wrong. See, it's the reality of living in a broken world. Suffering, suffering is a constant. It's something that's inescapable. it's also something that our culture is preoccupied with escaping. Our culture is obsessed with avoiding and escaping suffering from our obsession with living longer, with having greater health, with having more wealth, with avoiding in every way that we can, whether it be through medicating ourselves or through entertainment. I mean, how much do we use entertainment to escape suffering in our culture? yet it's a reality and it forms this tension in our life. But we're going to see in our passage, as Paul takes this reality, this common reality of suffering, and shows us how, for those who are in union with Christ, suffering is transformed. It begins to have meaning and purpose. Uh, For those who are in union with the suffering servant, for those who are in union with the king, who laid down his life and suffered so that others might live, suffering takes on a new meaning. Not only for what he has done, but also for your life. And that's what we'll see in our passage. We'll see basically two things. We'll see how our suffering glorifies God in us. And secondly, we'll see how our suffering transforms us. How it changes us. How it brings us into the glory that God created us for. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's look then at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now it's very helpful in any book to understand the context and the occasion for writing and what's going on. It really brings meaning out, especially whenever you start in the middle of an argument like we're doing here, starting at verse 6, the middle of a paragraph. But let me tell you just a little bit about what's going on in Corinth, which was the church that Paul's writing to here? You know, there's two of them. There's two letters to this church, and so we get, we get a picture of what this church was like, what this place was like. We know other things about what this city was like. It it was a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, it was a city that that um, well, in this culture, it was very popular to uh, to go listen to philosophers, uh, rhetorical flair, the paper the ways that people would talk and speakers, and there were followers of all kinds of different teachers and and philosophers. And this was a very popular thing to do in Corinth. And so what happens is as Paul comes through Corinth and he plants this church and then moves on, there's a number of other teachers that follow him, that come in behind him. They come into the church and start teaching and the things that they're teaching are different than what Paul was teaching. And one of the things that stood out about these false teachers is that they were very different than Paul. In fact, they looked very much like what the worldly philosophers look like. You know, they they came and they spoke with great eloquence, great rhetorical flair. You know, they they knew the ways to speak in such a way that really captured people and Another thing is just the way that they carried themselves. You know, if you've ever seen a famous person out somewhere, perhaps in an airport or something, famous people travel with posses, right? They got, they got a group of handlers that go around with them. I mean, that's kind of how you know somebody's famous. Well, these teachers, they had a posse following them. They had a crew. They had handlers. So they'd roll up with a crew. They'd roll up with their, uh, their credentials. You know, they'd send letters that had their credentials or they'd send, have other people send letters ahead of them. You know, it was all about them. It was all about their skill. It was all about what they could do in their teaching. And so the Corinthians begin to see, well, hang on a minute. These guys with, you know, great hair, great teeth, fancy clothes, I really like what they're saying. And, you know, what about this Paul fella? that planted this church, that what, what are we to make of him? Because he, he seemed very different. In fact, he seemed very unimpressive. He didn't speak with the same kind of eloquence and flair. His appearance was, was kind of weak. He didn't come with uh, credentials and recommendations. You know, he seemed kind of beat down. And he seemed really, really weak. What are we to make of him? And so they begin to question Paul's authority, and even worse, the message of the gospel that he had been preaching. And so they send to Paul and they ask him, hey, would you mind just, before you come through next time, just, just have some, some recommendation letters sent in. We'd like to see your credentials. We're kind of evaluating which way we want to go. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians to say, let me tell you about my way. And let me tell you about the nature of the Gospel. And let me tell you about the power of God and how it's manifested in our life. And so that's the context of what we step into. Right there in verse 6, as Paul begins to kind of pull the curtain back on what it is he was putting his trust in. You know, one of the things about the false teachers is that they depended on their rhetorical skill and appearance to change people, to get people to believe something. But Paul right here in verse 6 says, I have a very different confidence. There's something entirely different that I am trusting in as I come to minister to you. And that is his understanding of how someone is transformed. How are they changed? How do they come to perceive the truth of the gospel and look at how he describes it here absolutely fascinating way to describe what God has done in someone who has embraced the gospel verse 6 for God who said let light shine out of darkness now pause for a minute where did God say let light shine out of darkness creation that's what happened at creation way back in the very beginning we see in Genesis 1 The earth was formless and empty. It was dark. There was nothing there. And God comes and moves against the darkness and the chaos and He speaks. He creates it all by His words. And He says, Let there be light. And what happens? Lights come on. Life bursts forth. That was how God created everything in the beginning. In this verse... Paul is going to say, in the same way that God created everything, He recreates people and all things in the same manner. It's the same with the new creation as it was with the old. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a long, packed in there kind of phrase, isn't it? It's vintage Paul. He's putting so much in there. You know, he's saying here what happens whenever someone is converted, what happens whenever someone embraces the gospel and is transformed and is made new, what's happening there, actually, is God is coming into their heart and saying, Let there be light. By nature, we are filled with darkness. We're dead. We're blind. We cannot perceive the glory of God. But what God does through the preaching of His Word is He comes in to one's heart and says, let there be light. And the glory of God in the face of Christ shines into their hearts. And they are changed. See, that's what Paul's banking on in his ministry. It's got to be God. He's got to come in and just flip the lights on so that you perceive that in the person of Christ, in all that He has done, the fullness of the glory of God is revealed. Did you see that God would become one of us, would take our place, taking all of our punishment upon Himself, that He would be raised to life, that He would be a forerunner for our own resurrection and one day we would inherit all things? That is the glory of God. There's nothing that glorifies him and radiates his character and his being more than that fundamental truth. And so Paul's banking on God coming in and saying, let there be light through the power of the gospel. But then in verse 7, Paul begins to talk about an irony at play here. He says, but we have this treasure. Now by treasure he's referring to the gospel message and God's planting it in one's heart. God opening one's eyes to the wonders of the gospel. That's the treasure. And for Paul, it's more priceless than anything that this world has to offer. But the irony here is that Paul says God takes this treasure of His, this ministry of the gospel, and He puts it in jars of clay. Now, jars of clay or some translations say earthen vessels. It's simply referring to a very common uh, storage utensil in the ancient world oftentimes people would would use these clay pots to transport water to drink from to cook from to to store things in it was very common and that that's of course the point that he's drawing here the clay pots were were ordinary they were common everybody had one and and they were they were breakable they were inexpensive they 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 easily broke They were fragile. And so what Paul's saying here is that this is God's way in contrast to what the false teachers were saying. They would say, if you're going to see God's power, if you're going to see a message with real power, then it's got to be embodied in this person that's got it all together. It's got to be embodied in this person that everything they do just works out just like that. And Paul's saying, no, you got it all backwards. You see, here's what God's up to. He takes the treasure of the Gospel and He puts it in broken people. He puts it in ordinary people, unimpressive people, weak people, struggling people, suffering people. It's His way. It's what He's up to. Now why would He do that? I mean, wouldn't He want His representatives to be the sharpest in the room? Why would He do this? Paul goes on to say, show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. See, that's the reason he does this. He puts the treasure of the gospel in broken vessels, broken people, weak people, so that you never, you never mix up, you never confuse the message with the messenger. He does it so that all the glory comes from him. He does it so that whenever plain preaching of the treasure of the gospel is met with a response and a change of life, no one is tempted to say, wow, they were a great speaker. You see, because God wants all the glory for Himself. He wants to show off His power. And so He takes the treasure of the gospel and He puts it in broken, ordinary vessels. (laughs) But as an illustration, Paul goes on to say, let me just tell you about my ministry let me show you what this broken vessel reality is like verse 8 we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, wow that's some kind of way to commend your ministry right, he didn't come to say listen everywhere we go we're filling up arenas people are flocking to come here And whenever I get up and talk, I'm slicing and dicing. Things are happening. It's working. It's happening. He says, no. This is what my ministry was like. Hard pressed on every side. Trouble everywhere I go. I'm oftentimes in chapter 12, he, he fleshes it out in even greater detail. I've been hungry. I've been exhausted. I've been naked. I've been persecuted and chased and threatened. I've been shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea all by myself. I've been beaten over and over and over. I've been whipped. I've been stoned. I've been left for dead. This is what my ministry is like. This is my glorious ministry. And on top of that all, I constantly carry the pressure of all the churches. There's my ministry. But here's the power of God in it. I'm not crushed. I'm not broken down. I'm not in despair. I keep going. The power of God is displayed in him sustaining me through my sufferings, I'm not taking them away. The power of God is in my patient enduring of affliction for the sake of the name of Christ. In verse 10, he goes on to kind of summarize his ministry. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus see, he's, he's constantly experiencing death, dying to himself, experiencing suffering. We're always, the nature of our ministries. we're carrying around the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. You see, for Paul, he is bringing a message. The gospel message is about the king who would suffer, the king who would lay down his life so that others might know life. See, that's the core of the message. And Paul says, I've got to embody it. As I embody it, it becomes more real. It's revealed through my life. As the method matches the message, it gets put on display in my life. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. You see, as one suffers for the name of Christ, as one endures suffering, no matter what it might be that God brings in your life, as you endure it with dependence upon God, depending on His sustaining you, even creating joy and driving you more to Him, the Gospel is revealed. God's power is put on display. Now, this is quite different than a lot of voices that we hear out there, especially in our culture. So many voices out there in our culture will describe the Christian life as your best life now. You know, following Jesus is to experience blessing upon blessing. Everything will go right for you. You'll be healthy. Your business will be blessed. In fact, the most spiritual people are the people that have it all together, right? You know, the people with Great hair, great teeth, great looking outfits, a perfect marriage, a perfect family. Surely that's what it means if you're really serious about Jesus. And we're taught to believe that if you only have enough faith, then the power of God will be displayed in His miraculous delivering you from something. Now, God can do that, absolutely. And it's not that we're not to pray. God come and change my circumstances. Come and heal me. Come and deliver me. In fact, Scripture tells us to do so. But it's just to realize here that the power of God is most displayed not in His removing something, but in sustaining us in the midst of it. See, Paul himself in chapter 12, he's got some sort of some sort of uh, ailment, some sort of thing that's inducing suffering in his life. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. He doesn't say what it is. Probably so that we can all relate. But you see that it drives him crazy. He's suffering from it. And he pleads with the Lord three times. Take it away. You know what God says? No. I've given this to you so that you might know my grace is sufficient. So that you might know weakness. So that that you might not become prideful of all that you've seen and learned. I'm going to leave it in your life because it's going to draw you to me. I'm going to leave it in your life because through you broken, my power will be made known. And Paul says, I'll get it. Okay, so I'll boast in my weaknesses now. I'll tell everybody I know about it. Because Paul sees how the Gospel inverts suffering in his life. So, one of the primary reasons that God calls us to suffer, his purpose for it in our life, is that he might be glorified in us as we endure, it, as we find him as more sufficient than whatever we've lost. He glorifies him. It's one of the main reasons. There's a second one that we see right here in the passage. And that's that through our suffering, we're transformed, we're changed. Life comes forth in our life. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. You see, Paul is playing out again those two realities. On the outside, the reality of his life, if you were to look at his life, you would say, That guy's wasting away. That guy is constantly under pressure. That guy is constantly struggling with things in his life. He's wasting away. But Paul says the reality is that those sufferings on the outside of my life are actually renewing me within because it's driving me away from myself. It's driving me in dependence to God. It's weaning me off of the world. It's driving me to Him in such a way that I have to say, you've got to be my everything. So his sufferings are actually serving to renew Him within. The next verse goes on, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Did you notice how he described his troubles there? He says they're light and momentary. If you think about Paul's life, if you think about all that he's going through, they are anything but light and momentary. Right? Are you kidding me? Beatings, abandonment, danger, persecution, suffering, almost dying time after time after time, those aren't light and they're not momentary. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He says, yes, they are. Whenever I compare them to the reality of the glory that I will one day know. See, Paul says, I weigh these things out I'm weighing out the things that God has called me to, the sufferings of my life. And I think of the glory that I will one day experience face to face with Him. Union with Him. Knowing Him more than I've ever known Him. Resurrection. New body. New world. If I th- as I think about that, my troubles now, they're so light, They're so momentary. This that I'm looking ahead to Well, it's forever. You see, Paul makes the connection that the troubles now are actually achieving this glory. That the things that he is enduring now are actually producing that future glory in him now. He is at present tasting the glory that he will one day know in full. You see, this is God's purpose for us with all those troubles he brings into your life. Is that he would use them to change us to bring us into the glory that He created us for. That we might be made into the kind of people that He always intended humans to be. Those who put others before themselves. Those who live in union with Him, delighting in Him more than anything else. You see, Paul says, the troubles now, they're achieving something. Both now, in my life, I'm already tasting it, but also future reward that will far eclipse." Anything that I'm going through now. This past week I was having lunch with a friend of mine and we are talking about cars. I was moaning about my transmission going out. And we're talking about cars and he was talking about his first car. And his first car was a a puke green station wagon. You see, his father had a, a very tight philosophy about how you train a child to be appreciative of what they have. And so the way you treat somebody to take care of a car is you make them for a number of years drive the most embarrassing, horrible car they could ever imagine. And this was his experience. And he called it, I love what he called it, he said, yeah, that was a character builder car. And I thought, what a way to put that. Because I knew exactly what he meant. See, it's tapping into this reality that if you've got to drive a car that you're embarrassed of, that hardly gets you there, It's just the ugliest thing you've ever seen. And whenever you get a nice car, wow, man, you take care of that. You love it. You're appreciative of it. It kind of knocks you down a few notches, right? You're not as prideful as you thought you'd be. You see, it's virtually a law of life that hardship and affliction and suffering changes us. It builds character. It weans you off of the world. I mean, for instance, when was the time in your life that you grew the most? Now, I'd be willing to bet to a person the time in your life that you grew the most in your character, in your person, in your relationship with the Lord was not a season of life where everything was going right, as if there were many of those, short-lived. But I would be willing to bet that the times in your life that you grew the most were the times of greatest hardship and affliction. See the reality there? God brings those things into our life because He wants us to change. And we can't change without those things because we're so self-sufficient. We're so self-reliant. We're so independent of Him and that's what He wants to break. He wants to drive us to Himself. So, how does this apply to us this morning? Are we to go about searching out suffering? Are we to try to suffer? Are we to live the ascetic life and beat ourselves up and always be doing more and all those things? No. No. You don't have to search out suffering. It just comes. just a part of life. It's a part of living in this flesh, in this world just a reality. It's going to come. The main idea here, the main thing to see is, it's all about how we respond to the suffering He's already brought into our life. That's the key. How will you respond to the suffering that's already there? If we were to take a cross-section of everyone here this morning, and we were to share the kind of things that we're going through in our life that we're struggling with, that we're battling, we would be shocked. We'd be totally shocked of the sickness, of the brokenness, of all the things that we discovered one another was walking through. Of course, you would never think it because we all show up and we look great. We look like we're doing well. We've got a smile on our face. But the reality is so different. Suffering is there. And some of us, are battling sickness. Some of us are, are battling inward struggles, a darkness that is just eating your lunch. Now, some of us are struggling with addiction. Some of us are struggling with the loss of a loved one that feels like it's tearing your heart out. Now, some of us find ourselves in a relationship that is so broken and painful, a marriage, you cannot imagine how you can keep going suffering is there. It's in our life. And even moreover, not even to mention that if you seek to follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer. It's just a fundamental reality. It was His promise to us. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. If you seek to follow Jesus, particularly in the way that you do relationships, I promise you your suffering will increase. If you seek to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you, to respond in love to those who have mistreated you, if you seek to do that, which is actual things Jesus said, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. If you seek to live your life in a way that He's called us, that is putting others above yourself, considering their interests above your own, if you do that, you're going to suffer in your life. It's inevitable. But the reality for us in our response, and I think this is probably the biggest problem for us, especially in our culture, is that we are seeking to escape suffering. We're seeking to avoid it, to disappear from it. I mean, in our culture that is saturated with entertainment and distraction and busyness, it becomes a prime remedy that we use to avoid suffering. I mean, we carry the escape from suffering in our pocket everywhere we go. If I encounter something that's hard in my life, that's eating my lunch, you know what I take comfort in? I'm going to look something up. I'm going to do some pointless research on something. I'm going to get some breaking news somewhere so that I can get out of here. So that I can escape so I don't have to face the reality of what I'm in. It's amazing how Retail therapy works in our culture, right? You know retail therapy. You know the the powerful way that a new outfit just takes the blues away for a day, then it's back? Or all the, the things that we use to medicate ourselves from the pain that we feel, like Merlot, food, like hobbies. I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever something hard comes in my life, whenever I'm face-to-face with my suffering, I want to eat something. I want to drink something. I want to go do something. I want to go find a hobby. I want to get out of here immediately. And I think for us in our culture, it's the biggest barrier to our responding in a way that will transform us. So how are we to respond? To our I think Paul gives it to us right here in this passage. In verse 18, he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. You see, it's beginning to live your life in light of the unseen realities that are always at play. You see, what's so common for us is the seen things, the things right here before your face, that they scream into our face and, and dominate our attention, our circumstances, right? But what you've got to begin to do is to say, there's a reality beyond this. This thing that I'm facing, God has brought it into my life. It's from Him. He has intentions for me through this. He's entrusted this to me. He's brought me into this. I'm walking through this. There's a purpose for it. God wants to move. He wants to draw me to Himself. He wants to change me. He wants to reveal Himself through me. It's seen in those same things there's an unseen reality. You see, it begins to transform suffering a little bit. Whenever you see, God's got a purpose in it. And so, the way to respond is to see that and then to surrender yourself to Him. It's to offer yourself to Him. To, To go to Him with that, not to your iPhone, not to all of the things that we tend to escape with, it's to go to Him and say, I'm hurting. It's eating my lunch. I'm dying here. I need you. Would you be more sufficient for me? Would you do in me what you would wish? I offer myself to you. That's how you respond in suffering. And whenever you respond to your suffering in that way, you will be renewed day by day with Him. It's a guarantee. So it's seeing what has God up to here. It's seeing the things in my life are an occasion for me to get disillusioned with my own sufficiency. To show me I'm a broken, broken individual. And I need you. And that's what He's after. And that's where change begins in our life. One of my professors used to say, you got to kiss your demons on the lips. He's talking about there is all of those things in our life struggles, suffering that we want to avoid and cover over and escape from he says, no, no, no you've got to get up close and personal with it and go to God with it and say, now what do you want to do? What do you want to teach me? How do you want to change me? That's how to respond. So we've seen in the life of Paul suffering is no accident particularly for believers instead is a part of His call for our life. That as death is at work in us, life may be at work in those with whom we're in relationship with. As I'm dying to myself and embracing the sufficiency of Jesus more and more and more, life is flowing out of me and into those with whom I do life with. That's His purpose. That's what He's calling us to here. Now I want to close with a prayer. It's a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of old Puritan prayers. And I think it captures well this dynamic that we're talking about of how union with Christ and the Gospel tends to take our circumstances, our hardships, and it tends to invert them, where they become actually a means of growth, a means of glory in our life. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this prayer ask you to pray in your heart, just silently, just offering this up to the Lord. And then I'm just going to leave it a little silent time. And the the musicians can come up whenever we're done with this, and uh, they'll just begin playing. But just to, to give you an opportunity, a little space to begin to respond to the Lord with what He might be up to in your life. Let's pray together. Lord, high and holy, Meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights, hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that re- the repenting soul. Is the victorious soul that to have nothing is to possess all that to bear the cross is to wear the crown that to give is to receive that the valley is the place of vision Lord in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells and the deeper the wells the brighter your stars shine let me find your light in my darkness your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley.